This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News, I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Later, we'll be hearing from some Kentucky high school students who talk about their experiences during the pandemic, how it has changed their routines and their lives. That's in just a few minutes. Uh, but there is no doubt this is election season. You're beginning to see it. It's the weekend between the two national political conventions, and in central Kentucky, both major party candidates for Congress are now on air with TV ads. It's an interesting district with Lexington at its center and other growing cities like Richmond, Georgetown, and Nicholasville, the state capital of Frankfurt, all within the 6th District, and then just outside that area, smaller towns and farming areas. Democrat Josh Hicks is introducing himself to voters in a 60-second ad that has been running on Lexington TV and cable. He hopes to unseat Republican Congressman Andy Barr, who has held the job since 2012. The narrative of his campaign is that he grew up poor and wanted more. Hicks was raised in Fleming County where he played football. He served in the Marines. He became a police officer before going to Moorhead State and then getting a UK law degree. He narrowly lost a state house race in Lexington in 2018 and is now the Democratic nominee for Congress in the 6th District. Josh Hicks, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Bill, thank you all so much for having me, sir. And congratulations on your nomination and winning that primary. You're putting a successful law practice on hold right now to make this run for Congress. You have said and, and do in that spot indicate that Washington needs more voices like yours. What voice do you believe is, is missing at the U.S. Capitol? I believe, Bill, that the voice that is missing is someone from a rural area who came up like I came up uh, suffered all of the sort of uh, failures and successes that we do in rural areas like that. Someone who essentially worked his way from not much to having a small business here in Lexington now. I think that broad perspective is something that's currently missing from Washington, D.C., because my kind of perspective is the thing that wants to work for people rather than politics or for power or for some corporate interest. You uh, indicated that uh, you said you might uh, like to shout some in Washington or indicated that you wanted to be a, a loud voice. Uh, you know, you, you go in as a freshman if you're elected. Do you think you would have a, an opportunity to, to get a lot of attention? Well, yes, sir. I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I think that I would have space to, to bring my experience and to bring the voices of the people of the 6th District along with me. And uh, as a former defensive lineman, if they don't make space for me, then I'll just make space myself. As you uh, watch the Democratic uh, convention that's going on this week, and as you uh, take national uh, Democratic money and support from Washington, uh, are you beholden to a, a national agenda from the Democratic Party that may or may not uh, totally fit and reflect the 6th District? No, sir, not at all, not, not at all. In fact, if I thought that the National Democrats or the National Republicans or anybody at all was doing the job the way that I think it should be done, I wouldn't be running for this seat. As you've said, I'm, I've got a successful law practice here in Lexington now, and if I thought everybody up there, Democrat or Republican, was already doing a good job, I wouldn't be running this race. But, you know, you will go and the, the, the leadership is in place. Uh, do you th think you can get along with them and, and uh, further what your agenda might be for the, the country in the 6th District? Or uh, do you ha have to fall in line with the, with the party vote? 
my the reason for running this campaign bill is i have seen far too many people of both parties go up there and fall in line fall into that trap of dark smoky rooms with lobbyists and corporate pack checks dangled in front of them and i've seen them walk down that path and forget where they came from and i am going down there to say i came to work for the people of the sixth district and that means if you're doing something good for the sixth district then i'll be there alongside you and if you're doing something that hurts the people of the sixth district then i'm going to stand up against you and it doesn't matter what party you come from i'm not being elected to go and play follow the leader i'm not being elected to go up there and join a club i'm being elected so that i can go and represent people who feel like their government has abandoned them has left them behind and doesn't have their best interests at heart how difficult would it be to represent a district that is uh, as diverse in many ways as the uh, as the sixth district is we talked about it you have a, a large urban center in lexington you have uh, you know, large towns that surround Lexington, and then uh, you have rural areas. Uh, how can one person be a voice for, for all of that? I think it's a matter of perspective, Bill, and, and, and having been somebody who grew up in a rural area and being a small business owner here in Lexington now, I think that the breadth of my experience is really kind of the only way we can truly have someone that has a little taste of everywhere. But more importantly, we have to do this, Bill, not just as candidates, although it's important as candidates, but as representatives in Washington, D.C., we have to come back to our district and be in public and meet and see people and hear their criticisms of us and hear their praises for us so that we get a sense of what we're doing well or what we're not doing so well, but more importantly, so we can carry all of their voices back with us to Washington, D.C. That's the only way in my mind that you can avoid falling in lockstep, falling along somebody's line, getting tied up and being beholden to some special interest up there, if you are constantly responsive to the needs of your constituents, if you are constantly there listening and hearing their stories, that's the only way you're going to be able to share them once you're in D.C. Let's talk about some issues uh, that uh, are likely to be uh, still uh, needing action uh, once uh, the new Congress uh, meets early next year. COVID-19 pandemic is tough. Uh, here in the U.S., the deaths uh, outpace uh, many of our wars, as you know. Uh, do you believe that, that uh, something is missing from our strategy in bringing this under control? I, I do believe something is missing. I, I believe we need to have direct and powerful leadership coming unified from Washington, D.C., saying here are the facts about this virus and here are the ways we can combat it and here are the ways that we can keep one another safe and get our economies open again, right? The, the, the thing is, we have to have a unified front. This is, a, this is an enemy, this virus, that has killed, like you said, more folks than we have lost in wars. And so we have to treat it like an enemy. And the only way that Americans can approach an enemy with any credibility, with any force, is unified. And unfortunately, that unification just doesn't seem to have taken shape. Do you feel there's something that, uh, that Congress could do, uh, you know, uh, that uh, has not been done? I, I do think that, that Congress has passed some bills that got some relief to some places. But I haven't seen it reach some of the people I've talked to. I haven't seen it reach enough small businesses. I haven't seen that relief that state, local governments are going to need to not only keep their firefighters, their city employees, their police officers employed, but the kind of relief that they need just to be able to have their economy going. Uh, uh, so many of our rural counties, uh, that they're the largest employer in, in that area. And, and without any relief that I haven't seen come yet or, and haven't seen really a serious run at yet, 
I think we're in for a much worse economic time than we would be otherwise. So the economic fallout is tough. It is redirecting history in, in some respects. And after Congress uh, couldn't agree to a second stimulus, President Trump uh, did some executive orders that provide some more money for unemployed people. Uh, do, you, do you support that action, first of all? So I support I support unemployed folks being able to live right on their unemployment and that $400 that I just saw that Governor Bashir is going to seek from the federal government I think that's a good start and and if that makes it here and can be implemented without putting additional financial burden on our state then I think that's going to end up being a good thing and, and it makes me wonder why the Senate couldn't take a bill up and get to that same $400 a week number that President Trump reached it's it's a strange thing we heard from the Senate that they were never even going to consider the bill in front of them that had been passed by the House, but now we've had an executive order that's essentially close enough, right, within the margin of error, within a negotiating range, and I just don't understand why it's so horribly broken and so torn apart up there that we couldn't get to this through the Congress, through the Senate and the House of Representatives, and instead had to rely on a presidential executive order. Well, as you know, the, the, uh, the Senate was saying that too much is being spent in the Democratic plan, and the Democrats say not enough is being done uh, in the Republican plan. So how do you keep uh, from becoming a part of the logjam in Congress, where the two sides literally walk out on each other and can't even have uh, good discussions? Well, you know, I, I've got a lot of experience in a lot of ways that I think lend lend me not only some credibility but an opportunity up there not only during my time in the marine corps where we had to fit all types of pieces and different personalities together into a unit to accomplish a mission but as a police officer not only dealing with my fellow police officers and accomplishing something but dealing with the public as their servant and going and trying to fix their problems even when they and, and me might have disagreed on things right so those two things and now i'm a lawyer and, and what i do is try to bring people together and try to get resolutions for things on behalf of my clients. And so all of those qualities I think are necessary. Now, we have to get up there and move past the rhetoric and who wins and who gets credit and all that kind of stuff and get back to the days where we had true public servants in office who only really cared about the end result and didn't care about who was gonna get the credit, didn't care about who was gonna get to put their name on it, but instead just cared about doing stuff for people who really need it. There are indications, uh, Mr. Hicks, that the drug epidemic has gotten worse during the pandemic. It has, of course, as you know, been declared a national emergency by the president and the money has been appropriated and is coming in for a lot of programs. And yet uh, the problem persists and may be getting worse. Uh, what do you propose we do now? Well, I think what we have to have, Bill, is, is a real comprehensive look at funding that really reaches out into every single region or even county of a district like this and puts resources in place that are results-based so that we have true good outcomes for people who are trying to overcome their addiction and communities who need them to overcome their addiction, not just for the human toll, which is obviously horrible, but for the economic toll, for the societal toll that we're seeing result out of this addiction epidemic that's been prolonged, right? It might be a national emergency now, but it has been a Kentucky emergency for a long time. And so we have to get some funding in here. We have to hold those bad actors accountable and we have to get some real results-based relief into our communities to give folks a chance to overcome. 
The past few months, uh, as you know, have been a, a time of social upheaval as well. Uh, you have been a police officer, as we've uh, noted. Uh, how do we get to a better model of policing and community cooperation and respect uh, that uh, we can move forward with? I think, Bill, that, that we have to take a look at the militarization of our police. And we have to take a look at making sure our, our police officers are in a profession where they make a good living and they obtain the highest level of training and they're trained in a way that really puts them as a part of their community, really, really emphasizes that community-based policing. I think we get bad outcomes where we have training or other signals that, that make police feel that they are at war with their, their precinct or at war with the public because police policing is a public service. It's something that you do to be of service to the public. And so the vast majority of police officers, and especially the ones that I know and I'm still friends with, they, they're dedicated to finding ways to reach out and to bridge gaps and to bridge chasms in their communities and to earn some trust or to rebuild some trust where it may have been lost. And I think a national perspective like that is gonna be very, very helpful in starting to heal this wound. Could you have foreseen uh, this uh, situation coming uh, where uh, at this point this, uh, uh, you know, ha has hit this point uh, in the country? I don't know. I'm not Nostradamus, and I don't claim to have any special powers. But I, I will say, that, you know, going back to 2014 uh, with the Scott shooting in South Carolina, there, there does appear to to be some problems, and, and those problems have to be solved, especially where they're, they're disproportionately affecting communities of color, black and brown communities. So we, we have to be able to look at this and ask ourselves the question, is this the best outcome? Is this the best we can hope for? Because I don't think that's the best outcome or the best we can hope for. And I know a lot of folks agree with me. Do you have any concerns about the way Kentucky intends to conduct this election with uh, significant reliance on the U.S. Postal Service, uh, which is reported to have uh, unsorted mail and trucks in a parking lot in Lexington right now, uh, you know, even before any ballots uh, are being uh, sent in in that way? Well, let me first say that the attacks on the United States Postal Service disturb me greatly because as someone who was deployed overseas with the United States Marine Corps, by getting that package in the mail from home was a big deal. And the USPS made that happen. And as somebody who grew up in a rural community, the USPS was the only mail delivery or delivery organization that didn't charge us a surcharge, didn't charge us extra because of where we lived. And it also employs half a million people across the country and nearly 100,000 veterans. So the attacks on it disturbed me, period. But I think that Governor Bashir and Secretary of State Adams have really gotten together with a good plan to make sure people can exercise their franchise safely and, and vote in this election the way they intend to or the way they want to. But if we don't get some things figured out about the USPS, if we don't make sure that everything is running like it was six months ago or six years ago or 60 years ago, then we put ourselves at risk to have late ballots or lost ballots or anything else. And I just, I'd hate to see that in an election like this where folks obviously want to be heard and frankly deserve to be heard. We have noted that uh, new ads have started uh, on both sides uh, in this campaign. Yours is autobiographical. Uh, Congressman Bars talks about the difficulty of losing his wife. So both are introductory ads for the campaign ahead. Do you think this will be a, a race with a civil tone or does it get uh, rough like most recent races have and, uh, and voters sort of get lost in the negativity of it all? Well, you know, Bill, we obviously wanted to introduce people to who we are before anybody else got a chance to, because I think everybody deserves to get to tell their own story. 
And unfortunately, I have lived here and seen the nasty and negativity and, and all of the things that are so common in political campaigns these days. What, what I'll say about it is I want folks to take a good look at who I am. And I want, to take, I want folks to take a good look at what I stand for, where I come from, and where I am now. And I want to really talk to them about the problems I see in Washington, D.C., the people that have been left behind here in this district, the stories that I have heard on this campaign trail, whether they involve health care, whether they involve losing a small business, whether they involve losing someone to COVID, or whether they involve just struggling to get by. I want folks to be able to take that away that I've not only listened, but I intend to go to Washington, D.C. and do something about it. Josh Hicks, candidate for Congress in the 6th District on the Democratic side. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. We'll stay in touch. Thank you so much, Bill. All right. And we hope you'll stay with us here on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. And we're going to hear from some Kentucky students who are dealing with this pandemic in their own way. Coming up next. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers, and it's great to have you here. High schoolers may be the most aware age group right now about all the changes the pandemic is forcing on them. We wanted to hear from some of those as to how they're handling the new COVID world. It's part of our Back to School and Beyond special that is up now on WKYT.com. Our Andrea Walker got a sampling of their opinions. We've heard from politicians and superintendents. Now we want to hear from the people being impacted most by the ever changing plans for the upcoming semester. The students over the course of two days, a dozen high schoolers from across our viewing area sat down with me via Zoom, of course, for a candid conversation about COVID-19. To say emotions about the upcoming school year are mixed. Anxious. Disappointed. Sad. Excited. Concerned. Intrigued about what the new school year is going to look like. Maybe a bit of an understatement. At the same time, it's completely understandable. As students, we recognize the fact that our government doesn't even really know what to do. When the pandemic first hit, the transition to virtual learning was both sudden and stressful for students. We never imagined that our senior high school years would end up like this. My teachers are trying and I respect them for that, but I'm not learning the same. If you have a question, you have to email your teacher and wait for a response. And sometimes that just is very difficult. You can't have eye contact. You can't have hands-on learning. You can't have other opinions of other classmates. You have accessibility to just Google something. And even though we know that we need to learn this, part of me is like, I really just want to do what's easy, you know? According to a recent study by the NWEA, a nonprofit that specializes in academic assessments, school closures linked to COVID-19 have left students underprepared for the upcoming semester, with only 70% of learning gains in reading compared to a typical school year and less than 50% in math. Because our school year was even shorter, they just like cut off some content. So it just makes me think like, will that affect me later? Of course, curriculum isn't their only concern. My brothers will be doing homeschool this year, and then I'll be doing the online classes for the high school, but I'll have to share an office here. So it'll be a challenge. We'll see how it goes. A lot of kids don't have a very good home life, and when they go to school, that's their seven hours a day that they get, a, they get to get away from that. They get to get fed. They get to socialize with their friends and just get out of that toxic home life that they're living. All right, 97.2, you're in the weight room. Take off, big boy. Yes, 
Instead of an outlet, high school sports has become yet another source of pandemic stress for students. Right now I'm doing cheerleading and that's, it's, con, it's a contact sport. So for most of quarantine, we couldn't get to do that. It's just, it's really frustrating because it's the big part of most people's life and that's something that they want to go on a college and do. I mean, I play football and right now at practices, we go in like groups of like five or six, you know, got to stay spaced out. And then like for quarterbacks and wide receivers, like they had to buy like 20 extra balls. And every single time you throw a ball, you got to put it into a bucket, wash the ball and then put it in a clean bucket. So, I mean, it takes an extra step, but I mean, I'm willing to take it to be able to play. Because like somebody said, like sports is a part of a lot of people's lives. They might not have the best grades, but they work on it because of sports. Now, if this group is any indication, it seems like students understand there are no simple solutions to the problems at hand. People are overhead of everything are just trying their best to figure out what they need to be doing because, I mean, nobody's lived through something like this. But that doesn't mean they don't get frustrated. If we need to wear a mask, that is totally fine. I'll wear a mask but let's have it to be with, with everywhere because some places require it, some places don't, and it's just very inconsistent. Also sort of talking about consistency. It's been sort of hard because our school district sort of made a decision that we, like you have an option to go a couple days a week and then be online the rest, and then like that changed. So like I, it got my hopes up. I don't know, it's just hard, like all the different things floating around and like not really knowing what's gonna happen. A lot of schools are giving students the choice whether they wanna go in person or learn online. Do you think that should be a choice or do you think that that should also be a more consistent thing where everybody's gonna be on the same page? If somebody does not feel safe to go to school then give them the choice to stay home. But if, for example, me, I would like to have in-person classes, so I would like the choice to be able to go to school. Now, with the consistency, if it's bad, then keep us home and keep people safe. But, you know, right now, the, the bars are open, so I don't see why schools could not be open. Yeah, I would definitely choose in-person too, but I also think that it is a good idea to have a choice definitely with the connection with the teachers and the connection with the classmates. That's just really important to me personally because it helps me learn. We're all different people. We're all individual and we all learn differently and we all feel differently about this pandemic. So I feel like it's really important that we have a choice to do what's best for each of us individually. And finally, when it comes to the virus itself, monitoring their mental health seems to be their main concern. It's very stressful in a way. Like, I'm, I personally, I'm not worried about the virus. I think you're gonna get it at one point, whether you like it or not, like it's gonna happen. It affects us, but not nearly as much as it does the older generation. That it's easy for us to forget and to take, not take it as serious as it should be taken. That being said, they also know they aren't immune. I did have a family member with it, but then she quarantined and she like stayed away from everyone and we had to like drop off stuff for it, which was, really weird seeing someone that you know and love is affected by it. We did have a family friend that got the virus and it was really scary. They're fine now, but I've kind of seen that it's a real thing and it's a scary thing. And um, it's really important that we follow all of the 
precautionary measures that are put in place to keep us safe. I do want to say thank you to that incredible group of students. And just so you know, if anyone can navigate their way through these uncertain times, it's you. Good luck. For WKYT, I'm Andrea Walker. And again, our special is available to watch in its entirety on WKYT.com. Stay with us now. We'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. The 2020 presidential election will be historic for several reasons. The two major parties held virtual national conventions. And for the first time ever, at least three quarters of American voters are eligible to vote by mail. The question is, can the U.S. Postal Service meet the surge in demand? And will Americans trust the Postal Service amid allegations of voter suppression? Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the latest. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The U.S. Postal Service in the hot seat, answering to lawmakers and lawsuits. This after pulling sorting machines, removing postal boxes, and cutting post office hours. Critics are accusing Trump supporter Postmaster General Louis DeJoy of sabotaging mail-in voting. As you know, President Trump is passionately against universal mail-in voting. This week, he surprised many, saying if universal mail-in voting catches on, the U.S. may have to redo the November election. History has never seen a presidential election redo, and the president does not have the constitutional authority to call one. President Trump claims universal mail-in voting will cause one of the greatest frauds in history. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi argues the GOP is trying to frighten people and convince them their vote won't count. Now a lot of people wonder, what is the difference between universal vote by mail and absentee voting? Universal mail-in voting means all registered voters are mailed a ballot. No specific request is necessary. But this year, less than a dozen states plan to vote that way. Most states will offer absentee voting for all. That means voters must apply for an absentee ballot in the mail. President Trump says he is a fan of absentee voting, and this year he will be voting this way himself. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. Now, here in Kentucky, the executive director of the State Board of Elections wants to make sure that the website, the one where you go and request a ballot, is fully operational. So that's why they are waiting until Monday to unveil it. So now, starting tomorrow, you can log on line and request a mail-in ballot. Those ballots are expected to arrive anywhere from mid to late September. The Secretary of State worked with the governor to come up with a plan and to give Kentuckians more options for voting this November. You have until October 9th to request your ballot. Absentee ballots can then be dropped in the mail or dropped off at any county clerk designated box. Much more on all of this, of course, at GoVoteKY.com. Well, that's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you make it a good week ahead.